0: Amen, amen. As our music, as music team is descending, uh, we do want to let you know, I think we have nursery available. I think I see our nursery workers heading out. So um, it's up to age three. Am I correct? Age three? Yes. So uh, we encourage you guys to let the, little, let the young ones go. Um, you don't have to, obviously. You know, we love to have the children here. And uh, if you want to keep your little ones close at hand, I don't have a problem with that either. Um, but we just want to make that available for you. If you have your Bibles today, I'd encourage you to open up to the, uh, the book of Luke. We're going to be there this morning as, uh, <clears throat> as we continue. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's, there are some conveniently strategically located uh, Bibles throughout the, um, the congregation in the pulpit and the seat in front of you. Um, and of course, we always do print off the, uh, the words in the bulletin so that you can have those to look at as well. Uh, excellent. Excellent. So we're continuing in a series. Um, I, 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 haven't, I don't really know the title of the series. It's funny. You know, you have a series, but you don't really have a title. I, I'm calling it the Holiness Series, but I just feel like that's not, it's not doing it justice. I thought about titling the series, you know, What's God Like? But even that I don't think does it justice. I think the problem I'm struggling with is, is the understanding the concept of what holiness is. to so try to draw that knowledge out. And so last week we were discussing a little bit about Moses and Moses' encounter with the burning bush and the holiness of God right then um, in his face. And this morning we're going to jump to the jump, we're going to move delicately, quickly through the Old Testament all the way to the New. Um, And we're going to see a a complimentary um, um, event that happened in the life of Peter and the disciples um, in the beginning of their ministry as Jesus was teaching And, and be able to see that The problem that we run into is, and this is the problem I see in my own life as well as in the lives of just about everybody that's ever called themselves a Christian, and that is that if we don't focus on the holiness of God to the extent of understanding that we can't completely grasp it, then if we're left almost to our own devices, we have to describe it. And the moment we're left to our own devices, we immediately tend, and this happens to everybody, we tend to reduce God to manageable terms. We want to sort of get him where we can see him and use him and, and know him at least to the extent that we can, and, and so we can know where he's at when we need him, when we want to call on him. You know, it's almost like we reduce God to a, to a, to a token or a trinket, maybe even sometimes a, a good luck charm. You know, I'll, I'll rub the Bible or I'll, I'll offer up a prayer when I need something. But other than that, God, you're not really around and involved in my life. And obviously, that's not the way it should be. We should be focusing on the the holiness of God to the extent that we begin to recognize that His holiness shows us clearly where we are and that we are sinners in need of a Savior that we can't approach God because of the sin in our life. His holiness is too great. Now we talked about last week that in understanding this you have to, you can't talk about holiness without talking about the love of God because they're inextricably linked. It's it's very interesting. Some of you guys know that I've been, uh, I'm an amateur carpenter and well, I take that back. I'm not really a carpenter. I'm more an amateur at everything, right? So, um, But uh, the one thing I'm learning is that as you're trying to join two pieces of wood together, there's a variety of ways to do it. You can do dovetail joints where you like, put them right together and it's kind of unique. You can do, um, you can do just a straight up uh, plane the edges and get them in there and use some nice glue. I know, Tom, you're finding this out uh, quite a bit in building your house, how important it is for those edges and corners to meet and meet perfectly and how hard it is sometimes to get those down. But the thing is, and the most beautiful picture we have is like, a, is like that corner that comes together in such a perfect and most amazing way. that You look back and you're like, how in the world did I do that? It came out right, exactly perfect. And that's where holiness and love comes into play. God was so holy that when he created the universe and sin was entered in doing completely into our fault, When sin was brought in, God knew, not only did he know at that moment, he knew before he created the world, but he knew there was no way that mankind could be able to to bring themselves into his presence. But God loved us so much that he had no choice but to make a pathway forward. And so the holiness, the righteousness of God, demanded that he give us a way to come into his presence. The love of God is that area where he wanted to be there. You know, there's this one scripture that we find that we often overlook, and it says that it pleased God to see him crucified. It was a way that brought us into the presence of God in such a way that we can now call him father. and He can call us his children. It's a beautiful picture. And so when you start thinking about the holiness concept, if you can imagine in your mind every painting you've ever seen of Jesus, every movie characterization you can of God or Jesus, every single picture or, or idea or thought or even, even just those wonderful thoughts when you're thinking about the holiness of God and the quiet space of your mind as you're sitting there reading God's word, all of that, roll it in together, magnify it by a thousand and then you get a little bit close to the beginning understanding of what it is to be holy. Now, you ask yourself, well, why are we even doing this? Why are we even talking about this? Well, Scripture tells us to. God wants us to get to know of it. I was reading through Job the other day, and it's not like Job is light reading, by the way. When you, it's not like you sit down and you say, "I'm just going to read a couple verses from Job." You really need to sit and like just really immerse yourself in that moment. But in Job chapter 22, he's being, he's having a discussion with these accusers. The guys are talking to him, and the man says to him, one of his accusers says to him, "Acquaint yourself with him. Be at peace, and thereby you shall come. Un, he will, she will come unto you." The idea that as we acquaint ourselves with God, peace blossoms within us and he draws closer to, our, to, to us. So we ask ourselves, how can we acquaint ourselves with, with a being that eludes all of the straining of our hearts and our mind? This is a difficult question to ask. As I was reading this week, I came across um, a quote from Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley, as you know, was one of those, uh, one of those founders of, 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 of a denomination, the Wesleyan movement. He was also heavily involved um, with uh, uh, the Methodists as they moved forward um, in where God was leading them in the early colonial days of um, uh, the infancy of our nation. And he wrote a, a hymn called, Glory Be to God on High. And this is one of the verses in there. It says, Sovereign Father, Heavenly King, Thee we now presume to sing. Glad thine attributes confess, glorious all and numberless. You see, as you start to think about God, you can't help but automatically compartmentalize and think about the attributes of God, as though the attributes are what define God's character. And unfortunately, the truth of the matter is, is that we can list and make a list of all the attributes we can see of God, and it still falls far short to define the holiness of God. Job also mentioned in chapter 11, when he was asking this question, he says, can you by searching find out God? Can you find out the Almighty unto perfection? Is it, as high, it, it is as high as heaven? It's deeper than hell. The measure thereof is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. That's pretty powerful and impactful when you think about it. Even Job was recognizing that the more he thinks about the holiness and the perfection that is God, the more He is drawn into that well, that hole, that just doesn't end. I came across another theologian. I've got a lot of theologians in the ancient ones this way, because I knew Don was going to be here this morning, and I know you like that sort of stuff. So, um, And I wanted to bring out some of these ancient quotes, you know. And so there was a hymn writer, a theologian by the name of Frederick Faber, and he wrote, he said that the darkness, that trying to comprehend this is like darkness to our intellect. But sunshine to our heart, and I was thinking about pondering on that thought—the idea that that our mind just can't quite comprehend it. But there's a spark within us. There's a spot within our soul that, as we dwell on the holiness and the awesomeness of God, we can we can it just blossoms out, and it truly is like sunshine to our heart. You see, to to our questions, God has provided the answers. Maybe not all the answers and certainly not enough to satisfy some of our intellects as we seek to know more, but he has given us enough to, to ravish our hearts, to inspire a desire within us to know him and to love him and to seek him out. This is the beauty of, of what he's given us. He's given us answers in nature. He's given us answers in his scripture. And then if that wasn't enough, he even gave us answers in the person of his own son. You see, God wasn't content to just give us a theological statement on it. He wasn't content just to throw a a passage of Scripture to us and say, there's proof that I exist. He had to come down and dwell among us to be able to show us personally, face-to-face, who He is and what He really meant when He said that He loved us, when He talked about His holiness. And this is where we're at now. As we begin to look and question about this, we think about the divine attributes of God. We think, think about the holiness as, as that is. The thing of the matter is, is that God doesn't really so much possess these attributes as qualities. They are how God has revealed himself to us, to his creatures. If you take love, like we mentioned many times this morning, it, it's not something that God has, which may grow or diminish or maybe even cease to be like it does to us. His love is the way God is. And when he loves, he's simply being himself. And that's the thing we need to understand when it comes to his holiness and his love. It is God being himself. In a poem written by that same hymn writer, Frederick Faber, the poem is known as the unity of God. He says this, he says, One God, one majesty, there is no God but thee. Unbound and unextended unity, unfathomable sea, all life is out of thee, and thy life is thy blissful unity. And that's where we are this morning, as we begin to look at this idea of of holiness. Moses encountered him on a mountain in a burning bush, and Peter is about to encounter him him on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. So we see in chapter 5, in the book of Luke, Starting in the first verse, I'm just going to read this down to you. This is an encounter in the beginning of the ministry that, uh, that Christ is, is giving As Luke recounts the, uh, uh, the, the founding of the disciples. And now it happened, verse 1, that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and and asked him to put a little way out from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, "'Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch.' Simon answered and said, "'Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets.' And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish. Their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners on the other boat for them to come over and to help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, O Lord." For amazement had seized him and all of his companions because of the catch of the fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. You will be fishers of men. That's an interesting passage. And one that I think is, um, is important for us to study this morning when we're dealing with the holiness of God. We're dealing with the understanding of it. I've entitled this sermon, "A uh, Handful of Holiness, because that's more of an alliteration than boatload of, of holiness. Um, but that's what we're talking about here, is a, is, is a, is a lot of holiness all up at once. And this, this, this scene is actually kind of an interesting scene. Oftentimes we look at this and, and we, we have to parse it out. We question it. We look at Peter's response. We look at his questioning of Jesus um, and wonder how this is. And then we see this weird response that, that Peter gives us in verse eight, 8 where he just falls on his face and says, get away from me. I'm sinful. I can't be around you, O oh Lord. And we have to ask ourselves, what is this all about? Well, it really begins, to understand this, you have to understand what Luke is trying to do. Luke is writing this primarily to a Gentile group of people. He's writing this to introduce Jesus into a group that had never heard it before, and as well as in, in, in introducing them to some of the, the apostles and the disciples that had been part of the story in the gospel. And Luke is a historian, and Luke is writing this, and he'd never himself met. Jesus personally. So his entire interaction with Jesus has always been secondhand from, from eyewitnesses that encountered this. And still the Holy Spirit has infused his writing and we have this, this wonderful book of history that we have in front of us. And we see this. And so uh, Luke is actually beginning right here in an introduction that will actually culminate in chapter 6 verse 16 when he finally says these are the disciples that, <clears throat> uh, that Jesus called to himself. And so we see this in the beginning, and look what it says here in verse 1. It says that, that the crowd were pressing around him, and they were listening to the word of God as he was standing by the lake. It's interesting, at this moment, we, we're hearing these words, and, we, and and this is really the first time that Luke uses this phrase. And it's a phrase that, that he is almost all exclusively uses in his, in his uh, gospel, the idea of the word of the Lord. And Jesus is preaching. He's bringing the, the word as... <clears throat> as as the Lord spoke it to the people, but he wasn't getting the the effect out. He needed to do something more. And so he grabbed the two But He saw the boats. He grabbed a boat. He went out a little bit further. This was Simon's boat. And Simon doesn't realize it, but he's about to come face to face with a holy God, the promise of everything that he had ever hoped for. In many ways, just like we saw on the hill with Moses, this is what theologians call a theophany. It's an interaction between God and man. It's a time where God comes bodily in form and says, hello, I'm here, listen to me. It's a moment where the holy meets the, the mundane. And the mundane has to react. The common has to react. This sinful world has to react. Simon doesn't realize it, but he's about to hit this wall and he's going to come undone. And he doesn't know what he needs to do. And so when we're looking at this encounter, I want you to be thinking that this is very similar to Moses' encounter with God on the mountain when the the burning bush was there. This is the same thing. This is a clear call to service. This happens often. Whenever a theophany happens, it typically precedes a serious call to service, which is exactly what Simon gets, that call to serve him. Now, we see this in, in verses 3 and 4 as he continues on. After he got into one of the boat, he, began, he put out a little bit. And he began teaching the people. Um, I, I like the fact that not only did he begin pe- te- teaching the people on the boat, we know the acoustics on, on, on open water is much better, but I also like the fact that where he sat down and began to teach the, the people. I'm wondering if that might be a, a new way that we can do I would. I think that would be fun. I would love to be able to just sit down. When I take that back, I probably wouldn't. I move around a little too much up here, and I don't know if that would be effective. But Jesus sat in the boat, and he taught the people, And when he had finished speaking, look what he said in verse four, He says, "Put out a little deeper, and we're in the deep water, and we're going to let down our nets for a catch." Now Simon, <clears throat> he's there, And hear what he says. He says, "Master, we've worked so hard all night long and caught nothing. I will do as you say and let down the nets." Many theologians have looked at this and many commentators really struggle with this because to the first reading, when you read that, it almost sounds like Peter's being a little snarky, maybe a little sarcastic and a little disobedient. Jesus clearly said, do this. As a father, one of the things that I like when I tell my kids to do something, I like them to get right up and do it. I don't like them to give me a reason why they shouldn't. I don't like them to give me a, uh, all the list of, of why it would be a better for me to wait 20 minutes or an hour or three days for them to accomplish what I've asked them to do. And it almost sounds like that. So we get this idea that possibly he's being disobedient. And that sort of flows into a, another understanding as we come down when, when, when verse 8 when he says, Get away from me, Jesus, because I'm a sinful man. But that would be reading it inaccurately. This is just simply a phrase that, that Peter is giving to, um, to Jesus. He's not showing disrespect. Actually, quite the contrary. He's showing great respect and difference. And it starts off with the first word, master. That word is um, only used pretty much by Luke. None of the other gospel writers use this. The word is ep- epistes, 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 and it's, it's unique to Luke. Luke had an interesting way of writing. Whenever strangers would come up to Jesus, they would always call him teacher. But when his apostles would come up and address Jesus, his followers... They would always address him as master. It was one of the ways, in a literary sense, that Luke had of defining between who was a follower and who was just a stranger that didn't know who he was. And once they became followers, obviously the title master was then used. It's also interesting in Luke's account that Luke doesn't use the word rabbi to define Jesus, like the other gospel writers do. And you can tell that Luke was writing for a more Gentile audience that didn't have a good understanding of what a rabbi was. And so we see that the, um, this idea here is he's showing him great respect by using this word master. And he says, master, I'm going to do what you say, but, but we, we haven't caught anything. And, and we've worked all night. And you see what it says in verse 6 and 7, and they let down the nets, and the great quantity came in. Now, obviously, Luke is writing about this event many, many years after it happened. And it's obvious if, if you if you know anything about the ministry of Jesus, and if you, if you know this passage as well as most of us do, you know at verse 10, Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. You're going you're to catch men. And the idea that Luke is trying to bring out is the the, the imagery of the fish, the great catch, that we're not given a, li- a number. We don't know how many fish were there. We just know it was so many fish, they had to have an extra extra boat come over, and it was filled to the brim of fish. And so all these fish were here, and the idea is that, G- that Luke wanted us to get out of this is that the number of individuals that would come through the ministry of the disciples to today was going to be vast and uncountable. And that's the legacy we have. Everybody that's sitting in here today, that is, that calls themselves a Christian, has a direct chain to Peter. James, John, and all the disciples. Because Peter, James, John, all those guys, they told someone who told someone who told someone all the way down to the individual that spoke to you. And that's an interesting picture. We may not be blood-related to Peter, James, and John, but we are spiritually related in ties that we can't even begin to comprehend. And that's a powerful image. And so we see this here as we see this idea that that Jesus is drawing in these people. He's drawing in this, this great and amazing catch. And then we have this weird scene, this weird scene where Simon Peter falls on his face and begins to say to Jesus, get away from me, Lord. He uses the word Lord twice. You notice that? He says, get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, we already mentioned this before. That this is a theophany. This is an encounter with the holy. This is an encounter with something that's completely, uh, completely foreign to them. And we read this. And guys, we've read this story numerous times. If you've been a Christian in any kind of Sunday school, I know if you've been in one on Sunday school class, you have, you have definitely heard this story because she does not skimp on the gospel message. I know that. And so... We've heard this story time and again. And for us, it's like, oh, yeah, that's a miracle, all those fish. And we think about the feeding of the 5,000. Oh, yeah, that's the miracle. But, I mean, reality is a miracle is, is a miracle for a reason. It doesn't happen every day. It didn't happen every day for them, and it doesn't happen every day for us. Now, I've been out fishing. I'm a terrible fisherman. You guys know that. And I've sat in Dan's boat for hours and hours and hours. And I've tried just to even catch one fish, let alone a net full of them. It's not easy. And there's some days that we've gone back in and I'm thinking to myself, Dan, if you keep putting me on this boat, you're never going to catch a fish because I am, I'm like anti-fish bait. You know, they run from me. And he keeps, whatever it is, he keeps taking me back out in the boat. And eventually we get, lo- we get fortunate. God blesses us and we're able to bring home a nice fish. But the point is that it's not easy to do this. And this is definitely a miracle. And this is an encounter with a holy God. And Peter saw it just the way Jesus wanted him to. He immediately recognized his sinfulness and his unworthiness to be in the presence of a holy God. Now imagine, if you will, all those years ago when Moses was on that hill in the burning bush and he comes close and he realizes he's about to encounter something holy. The voice of God calls out and says, don't come any closer until you take your shoes off, until you recognize that you're standing on holy ground. You're in the presence of a holy being far beyond anything you can comprehend. And if you come one step for, for further and if you don't do it in a worthy manner, you will not exist. Later on in the life of Moses, he begs to see the face of God, and God says, you can't handle my face. He says, I'm going to carve out this niche. I'm going to put you in it. I'm going to cover it over with my hand. I'm going to walk by you, and you can glimpse the train of my robe, and that's as much as you can handle of my holiness. That's Moses. Think about Isaiah. We're going to get into him in a week or two. Isaiah chapter 6, one of the greatest encounters with the holy God, Isaiah is seeking an encounter with God, needing something to to reach into his soul, hoping at some point that God would would give him an answer in this hugely tumultuous time in his life when everything was radically changing. His, His king had died. The world is changing. And he comes into the presence of God, and God brings him in this vision, and he says, I am undone. I am literally ripping apart at the seams. I cannot handle the holiness that you have presented to me. Think about John, exiled to that island, encountering God in a vision. He wrote the vision down. We know his revelation. He comes into the presence of God, and the first thing he does is fall down on his face. He's dead, he says. He can't move. It's not until he is touched and brought up before he's able to do it. He encountered the holiness. How can we ever think that this was anything other than that? When Peter was presented with the holiness of God, the first thing he noticed was that he was a sinner and unworthy to be in the presence. When was the last time in your prayer time where you sat down and you were overcome by the Spirit of God? You were overcome by that holiness in such a way that you've never experienced before. And you can see it sometimes when the, when the, when the I call them glory bumps, you know, when they start rising. And I don't know about you, mine always seem to rise right in the back of my hand and sort of just roll up. Now, I know we have, some, we have some doctors here, and I know there's a scientific reaction to that, and cold weather, barometric changes, things like that, the little hairs flopping around in the back. But it doesn't matter what it is, God uses it. And he moves through us. And those moments when that's happening is your first thought, Lord, I'm not worthy. Lord, I'm a sinful man. Lord, if you come any closer into my life, it will destroy me. Not really. For the most part, we don't do that. For the most part, we just get it as common knowledge. And we say, well, we've got the blood of Christ protecting us. We're righteous because of him. And we get all those other things. And, and, and so we bypass that whole thing. I would encourage you, the next time you're in your prayer time, the next time that you're opening up God's word, and he's speaking to you, and you can hear it, and you know he's there, and you can feel it, and you feel the Holy Spirit pressing down on you, I would just ask you to stop what you're doing, stop reading, stop focusing, just sit there for a minute, look up to God, repent of the sins that are in your soul, and ask him To speak to you, right? Because these kind of theophanies, these kind of moments where the holiness comes on top of us, always precedes a call to serve. And that's where we are. We are called to serve him. And whether we're Peter, James, and John, and I know they get it, they're on huge pedestals because they were the first guys. But you know, the apostles, they were there, they were our forerunners, but they gave us the example. And the example was not to sit around and let two or three people in the church work. The example was that we all get up off our pew butts and do what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to move. We're supposed to serve. And maybe it's a small service. Maybe it's just the service you have at this time in your ministry is to, is to work with your kids because Lord knows we have lots of kids in here. And that's, that's a full-time job. It's like two full-time jobs. But whatever it is God's calling you to do, let him tell you. Let him clarify it. And that's exactly what Peter does. He falls on his face in utter amazement. Falls on his face in utter amazement. There's other examples of this in Job chapter 42, verses five and six. I encourage you to look at that as well. These are these uh, times when, when God comes in and says, I've got a job for you. Look what it says in verse nine. It says, the amazement seized him. It seized him. You know, this is an interesting thing. You know, you you can say faith is is one of those things that drove the apostles. I have no doubt in my mind. The fact that they even went and sought. Jesus at all, and the, the fact that they even went into his life and decided that they wanted to draw things from him, and we see that, that faith tends to be that engine of, of our knowledge. It's what drives us forward to know God. We have faith in God, we, we, we want to have that faith grow, we know we have to exercise it, so we, we get that engine of faith moving and knowledge of him comes, and that knowledge sort of feeds back into the machine and we're able to move forward. But there's another part of that that we can't, we can't miss, and that's the idea of love. So we have faith and we have love. And love is like that ever-turning wheel of experience that we have as we encounter God over and over and over again as it drives us closer and closer and closer to us. And that's what Peter is wanting, is he wants so much to know him because the amazement, as I said, had seized him. I was reading this other um, uh, Spanish uh, uh, preacher from days gone by. His name was Michael D. Molinas. He was a representative of a, of a religious uh, revival that happened many, many, many moons ago. Um, they called the, uh, the movement quietism, as they sought to quietly um, uh, draw closer to God. And he came up with this. He says that when this happens, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, it causes the understanding to leave behind all considerations and reasonings. He draws the church, the Holy Spirit draws the church forward, and he causes her, us, by means of a simple, obscure knowledge of faith to aspire not only to be her bridegroom upon the wings of love. And this is something to think about. You see, what drives this whole machine is the love of God. The holiness set things in motion because a holy God demands, demands something when we sin. And the love of God drew him to us. It forced him. No. He wanted to. No? It's even worse than that. The desire of his heart from the beginning of time was to see us and him together for all eternity. And he needed to make that happen. That's why when scripture says that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He was willing to go. One of the passages, I think, in Revelation talks about the lamb being slain before the foundation of the world. Before God ever said, let there be light, before he ever visited Moses on the mountain, before he ever visited Abraham, Jacob, or Isaac, before he ever showed up in a manger, he knew what was going to be required of him and we read the words of the crucifixion we read the words of the incarnation we hear these things but none of us really understand we don't know what it caused what pain and anguish came out of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ the separation, the, the sin, everything We have no way to comprehend that, and we never will. All we can do is sit back and say, God, thank you. You see, the truth is he came in a cradle, but his goal was the cross. That's where he was going. From day one, he always had the cross in front of him because he knew the only way to make this happen, the only way to reconcile mankind to himself was to go to the cross and die. Everybody in here is a sinner. We've mentioned that numerous times. Everybody in here cannot get to heaven on your own. There is nobody in here that is strong enough, fast enough, pretty enough. Well, some of you are pretty. I'm not pretty enough. There's no way. I was talking to, uh, I was talking to Emily this week on the subject of pretty. We were talking about hair. She keeps picking on my, my, my bald spot. She loves to poke at it. I didn't know I had a bald spot so she started poking at it. Now I can't stop thinking about it. It's really frustrating. But I was thinking, I was thinking of, her, of her father, Eric. We just I love your hair, man. I, I just, if I had a hairline like that and if I was tall as you, it's just terrible, isn't it? You know. The truth, truth of the matter is, even if I had a great hairline like yours, if I was as tall as you were, if I was a good, as good a man as you are, as wonderful of a husband and father as you are, it still wouldn't matter. I couldn't get to heaven. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. And that's where we stand, right? We stand in poverty, beggars, asking for crumbs from the king's table. He sees us begging and he brings us in. He clothes us in righteousness. He sticks us at the table. And rather than crumbs, he gives us a banquet and a feast fit for a king. He calls us sons. He calls us daughters. And we can call him father. That's a pretty powerful thing. I know this morning you're probably asking if you don't know Jesus how can I know him? You're probably asking if I, how can I understand the holiness? You're never going to understand it, but you can begin to acquaint yourself with it this morning. We have a number of people here in the congregation that love Jesus and would love to point you in his word how to be saved, how to get your eternity taken care of so that when you step out of this building, you know that no matter what happens, come what may, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when you step out of this mortal plane into heaven, you'll be able to look Jesus Christ in the eye and when he asks you why should I allow you into my rest, into my heaven, you can look him in the eye and say because I accepted your son, because I recognized that I was a sinner, because I knew I couldn't get in alone on my own own accord and I had to beg you to save me. Me. And I have done my best to serve you from that day to the day you step into glory. These are the things that He's going to ask you. Because make no mistake, it's not our heaven. It's not just heaven. It's His heaven. Period. So I encourage you if you don't know Jesus Christ, your Savior, don't leave here today without getting your heart right. I encourage you to come to the altar. We've got it open. There is some spots. We've got some beautiful poinsettias here, but I guarantee you they will not get in the way of you being able to share your need to a holy God. There are some of you maybe sitting there saying, you know, I know Jesus, I love him, I've been baptized, I've been serving him, but there is just this week, there's something going on and I just can't quite put my finger on it. I don't know if it's just the, the, the looming Christmas season or the, the, lo- the loved ones that we've lost in the past or the change that's happened in my life, but I'm just not feeling it. No, feelings are ephemeral, they come and go. The love of God is eternal, and I guarantee you that if you don't feel it, it's not because he's not there, it's not because he doesn't love you, it's not because he's not right next to you, closer than a brother, ready to wrap his arms around you, it's because there's something in between you and him that's preventing you from feeling it, and I encourage you, come down front, ask him to show you what it is. Some of you may say, you know, I've got it, I'm feeling it, I know God's with me, but still the burden is tough. I just need to do something. That's the beauty of this altar. It's like the Swiss Army knife of the Christian world. It will handle any and all tasks. There is nothing you can't do at the altar. And I encourage you, whatever it is that God's leading you to do, when the altar is open and our musicians are playing, I encourage you to come down front. If you'd like me to pray with you, I will. If you'd like someone else to pray with you, that's fine. If you want just to spend some moments with God alone. And you know, the thing is we have to get rid of this stigma. We oftentimes get this scared feeling that like the moment we step out that everybody's looking at you. They're not looking at you. They're just more afraid than you are. And that's what's keeping them in the pew. Truth is, we all need to be down on this altar. Every one of us. In conclusion, because I know they're keeping track of how many times I say that, I think I've only said it once, this sermon. So there you go. I'm going to say it again. In conclusion, <laughs> I'm going to leave it off with a good friend of mine by the name of Kenny Atkins. He and I both uh, felt called to the ministry together many, many, many years ago. And he was a big, loud, boisterous fellow, and I've told you about him before, those of you that have been around here long enough. And Kenny was just this, this beefy, big, just massive man. Even as a young boy, he was still a man, you know. And whenever he was encountered with anything that was slightly worldly or sinful, he would just grab me by the shoulders and he'd look me in the eye and his big, boob, booming, deep voice, he'd say, Al, ah, you need an altar experience. And he'd say, come on. And he would drag me down to the altar and we'd have an experience. And it was something. And I guarantee you, as funny as that may sound, as weird as that may, that image may be in your mind, it always brought me closer to God and there are days now when I, when I think of my friend Kenny who has fallen away from the service to God who's not serving at all he barely attends and I've reached out to him numerous times and he has not saw fit to reach back and I remember every single time that he and I went to the altar we encountered the holiness of God we encountered the love of God and I always left the altar changed This morning, if you need a change, if you need a touch from God, if you need salvation to begin with, the altar is open. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day you've given us. We thank you for the privilege to be able to be your servant. Lord, we know that there are many things that we could talk about when it comes to the holiness of God. And I know that all that we talk and all the words that we could write or speak or think still pales in comparison to who you really are. Father, I ask in the coming days as we seek to know more about your holiness that you'll draw us closer to you, that you will encourage us, Lord, to to seek to know you more. And as I mentioned earlier this morning, Lord, that you would spark and ignite a fire within us that burns so hot and so bright and forces us to to desire you above all else, that we might be able to walk away from, from our encounter with you hungering and thirsting for the next one and the next one and the next one, that we may have a series of connections with you that it flows from one to the other. And then when we step out of this body and into heaven. We have never really been apart from you. Father, I ask that you'll guide us as we seek to know you more. If there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, Father, as I, as I make this appeal every single week, Lord, I ask, don't let them leave here today without getting their heart right. Father, we know that heaven is forever. And so is hell. And Father, we know where we want to be. We want to be in heaven with you. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for what you did with your son on the cross. Go before us this week as we seek to be your servants in all we do and say. We ask this now in the name of your son and our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.